ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new Redefining Cybersecurity Podcast with Sean Martin. Have you ever thought that we're selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Well, perhaps we are. So let's look at how we can organize a successful InfoSec program that integrates people, process, technology, and culture to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power now more than ever. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. iTrust is a leading data protection standards development and certification organization that strives to safeguard sensitive information and manage information risk for global organizations across all industries and throughout the third-party supply chain. Learn more at HighTrustAlliance.net. And here we are. You're very welcome to a new episode of Redefining Cybersecurity here on ITSP Magazine. This is Sean Martin, your host, and. Uh, as those watching, yes, we do occasionally do a video podcast here uh, to, to bring faces to bear. And the, the bear face today is uh, our good friend, Matthew Rosenquist. And uh, Matthew, it's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to be here. <laughs> we, we get to talk about all kinds of fun things uh, on many different channels. Uh, we did a Crucial Conversations not too long ago. That one's not, not published yet, but that one's coming and You've been on audio signals and redefining cybersecurity and the other society, and you've helped contribute to tons of tons of uh, things from ITSB Magazine, even including a European Liberal Forum uh, article that we put together. So, lots of good stuff. It's always great to have you on. Your your mind blows me away every time we have a chance to chat. And today's topic, uh, I get the tenfold mind blowing. <laughs> So we're gonna, we're gonna look back <laughs> on you looking forward from last year to now, and uh, and kind of unpack some of the predictions you made for 2022. And I'm gonna be brutally honest, and and we're gonna have have a good old tug of war. How well did you predict the future back then? And and we'll see how that's shaping up for for this next year. And I'm gonna. I'm going to give a shout out to Mark. He was supposed to be here to tag team and, and double up on the uh, the beating up, but uh, he he's off taking a taking a break. Uh, so I'll, we'll let him do that, and you, you get half half the trouble today. Matthew. I'm, I'm have, sure uh, I'll <laughs> have a conversation in the future, and and he will catch up. I'm sure he, he never misses the it. beat when there's an opportunity to be brutal. That's so right. yes, that's right. So take take. Take it and, and run with it as a start to 23, uh, and uh, you'll, you'll carry that burden with you until, <laughs> until you meet him again. Um, all right, so th this is inspired by a, a post you did on LinkedIn. Um, trying to think when if it shows here when you posted it. Uh, December 30th, 2021 is when you posted it. It's just at the end of the year, uh, 2021, looking at 2022. 
2022 and you made 10 predictions. Um, I mean, some bitty, pretty big buckets of, of topics there. This isn't ransomware is going to grow 5% or, or threat actors are going to be, I mean, we're, we're talking big bucket things here as a general overview. How well do you think you did? Or were you kind of in, in, well, in the ballpark with some of this stuff? I, I, I think I was in the ballpark. And, you know, the, the benefit of predictions, especially when you publish them, is you get to go back and you get to see, did you get it right? Did you have the major momentum, the broad strokes right? Were you able to, to narrow things down? And there's lots of different companies and people that do predictions. And it, honestly, most of them cheat. They'll say things like malware will be bad, more ransomware attacks, right? right. Very vague, very general. That really doesn't help anybody. And so it's, it's trying to find that balance between talking about important things and getting down to a reasonable level of detail that's actionable. But not, I mean, there's, we truly don't have a crystal ball to say exactly how much is going to happen, but we can start bringing in trends. And if it is valuable, if people that are doing predictions do get relatively close in this chaotic kind of world, um, that is a benefit moving forward. Because those that do have some semblance of insights on what's going to happen have a big advantage. And so that's what's all this about. And that's why I love coming in and talking about what we got right, what we didn't get right uh, as we move forward. Because if you're, if you're not, you know, rating it, then, you know, you don't have the feedback, you're not getting any better. And we really need to be able to look forward. So yeah. overall, I think I did okay, <laughs> but it's, it's all a matter of perspective. I think we need to talk about the finer points we, for we will, each one of these. We will certainly do that. But before, one more thing before we get into that, um, to the list of 10. Do you, when, when you're putting this together, I mean, I do a lot of writing stuff too, and I'm wondering how you approach it. Do you, do you have kind of a call to action in mind uh, and who you're writing for and what you hope them hope they will take from it? Or do you, for example, I want CISOs to have an action plan, a one, two, three, based on these 10 things. Or do you, or do you say, Screw that for this. This is just about me analyzing the market and I'm not going to do anything specific to any particular audience. I'm just going to present what's in my head based on the experiences I've had, research I've done, interactions I've had with folks. It's definitely more of the latter, right? I do a lot of pieces throughout the year and saying, hey, you need to do this or, or this is a weakness or, or this should be what we're doing. This analysis, the predictions, doesn't look at any of that. It really looks at the fundamental drivers, the engine behind cybersecurity. And honestly, that actually starts with the attackers. The attackers are what move us. They have the initiative. It is based on what they do is what determines what the security folks and technologies and services, how they will evolve, right? And the combination of that, as well as the battlefield, right? What is changing within the IT or digital landscape itself? Now we can start understanding what is going to make it through the cracks. 
what is going to blindside us potentially. And that's what I'm talking about. Everybody knows there's going to be more spam and phishing and ransomware and things like that. But if we can start getting more detail around those inner workings, those gears and those cogs, then we can start discussing in much more detail avenues and breakouts that we would expect. And let, let's let's get into it. You mentioned cracks, and I and I'm thinking the first point here. You'll understand why I'm going with this. There's a movie with a guy putting his finger in holes where water's coming through in the dam. <laughs> I think it's vacation, yep. Chevy Chase, right? So the first one on the list is. Critical infrastructure is a prime target. I don't know if dams, certainly I believe. They're, they're dams are part of critical infrastructure. Right? Yes, it is. I don't, know, I don't know if they actually had any incidents <laughs> in 2022, <laughs> but nonetheless, there's water. I know water is a big topic of discussion in the West Coast, and uh, who knows if that's moving east or not, but uh, certainly clean water is important all around the world, and managing yes. that to uh, not just store it, but to distribute it properly and and use and it to filter it to clean it potable yeah. water you've got wastewater things of that sort yes that's one of yeah. the irrigation for food food's kind of food's kind of important too yeah. food not only <laughs> growing it but also processing logistics and transportation to get it to our grocery stores yes yeah. that's another one telecommunications power generation uh, including nuclear power there's a whole bunch um, uh, national defense, defense industries, there's, um, uh, you know, you name it, anything that we need for our daily lives and comforts, um, including those government services and our ability to form a new government, all of those, uh, all fit in within critical infrastructure. Yeah. And we saw in this last year, lots of attacks across all of those sectors, um, you know, you had mentioned, you know, water supply, wastewater. We saw uh, cyber attacks against that. We saw attacks against, and again, it's not only even the United States. This is globally. We're seeing attacks against nations, government agencies, um, healthcare. Healthcare really kind of got brutalized in right. 2022 uh, with a lot of data breaches, a lot of ransomware. So there were a lot of attacks against critical infrastructure. And the good news is, out of all of that, a lot of them were defeated. A lot of them were intercepted or detected early and the risks or the impacts minimized because the risks were recognized ahead of time. Not in all cases. We saw lots of, of hacks out there and lots of attempts, uh, especially right after kind of February timeframe. A government that is not, well, I'll name it, right? Russia, uh, you know, invaded Ukraine. And as part of that, there were all sorts of attacks, not only against Ukraine, but also against EU, the United States. And, and that, it wasn't as big as we thought it would be. And the other factor there is there was public-private partnership. And I'll call out Microsoft um, as probably the best they went in very early and started recognizing these critical infrastructure attacks and responding, not after the fact, but as they were going on. And so it wasn't, we're going to respond a day or two days after. They were responding within minutes of seeing some of these attacks and actually able to shut them down in record time uh, in cooperation with Ukraine and with U.S. and other allies. 
So yep. the number of attacks uh, were definitely there, but not successful, which is a good thing. Yeah. And to this point, because you mentioned Microsoft, uh, mm -hmm. we, we can easily see them in the world of IT. But in, in your prediction, uh, you reference the whole old OT, operational technology space. And I know there's been a lot of talk about uh, bringing those two worlds together um, from a security and risk management perspective, um, perhaps funding funding the OT folks with, with security knowledge and, and uh, or arming them with security knowledge and tools, um, but then the overall view of that. So I don't know how much Microsoft plays in the OT world. I'm sure they do. But uh, I don't know, SCADA's in there, um, mm -hmm. scanners for healthcare, uh, all, all kinds of stuff is in the OT world. So with respect to your prediction, specifically now on OT and IT, you said we're going to yes. see a blend of that, certainly from an implementation perspective. How about the security perspective and attacks? Do we see crossover on attacks hitting OT, moving to IT or whatever? So we're definitely seeing the attackers go into the OT space as well. But a lot of those, because again, it's a little bit different environment. It's not your pure Windows environment. It's your cloud or data center. Um, you've got IoT and IIoT, uh, you know, industrial IoTs and those kinds of things. Uh, and dedicated hardware, runtime operating systems. It's very, very specific we are seeing attacks going into that space and we're seeing big suppliers in that space being targeted, right? Siemens has been targeted. Honeywell has been targeted. Why? Because they manufacture and assemble and deploy and support those OT environments. So we've seen hacks go after them, uh, especially in the area of discovering vulnerabilities a lot of time and effort in 2022, and this isn't gonna change for 2023, this is only gonna get worse. A lot of resources have been put to find vulnerabilities in those systems and targeting basically supply chain for the OT world to be able to attack at scale. So we have seen those attacks and Microsoft, it's got its fingers everywhere and there's lots of companies uh, that are working on both sides. The attacks that we're seeing are more specific in the OT world to the OT world and not necessarily I make one attack and it hits IT and OT equally or or kind of with the same code. It tends to be more specific at this point because the OT attacks haven't matured yet. They're getting there. We're seeing the funding. We're seeing the resources, but not anywhere near the level of our normal um, digital world around, you know, Windows and Linux and things of that sort. So you talk about Microsoft doing doing good work there and, mm -hmm. and identifying and stopping attacks. Um, the next item on your list is that uh, the government, <laughs> law enforcement, would actually step up their game mm -hmm. and actually get involved. So I'm wondering how that looked uh, across the year and did, did Microsoft alleviate some of that work for them? Did they, did they actually step up and, 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 and I don't know how I'm trying to think of how much you covered here, but there's the actual identification blocking. Uh, I don't know if you then do the attribution and, and uh, take somebody down. How, how does that all look from 
Yeah, Microsoft actually is one of the premier teams that works with law enforcement to not only detect, but then again, to, to dive in to figure out that attribution, to enumerate the infrastructure that the attackers are using, and then actually work with law enforcement, and not just U.S. law enforcement, but law enforcement around the world, to go after those assets. And this is something that they are refining. It used to take years literally years to figure out what kind of infrastructure the bad guys were using and try and figure out those domains and take them over or, or seize servers and gather information. Now, Microsoft has narrowed that down to weeks. And in some cases, especially after February, it was a matter of days and in some cases, even hours that they were able to do that. And when you've got you know the Ukrainian government, um, obviously... Uh, very open to that kind of assistance and willing to act very quickly on any real-time intelligence, things move, started to move very, very fast. And so they were able to identify a lot of resources and domains and simply take them over, right, and deny the attackers the ability. And they've got, again, they've got one of the premier, most respected teams out there that works with law enforcement. Uh, FBI, they've partnered with FBI for probably since their inception, uh, and they're considered some of the best in the industry. So law enforcement definitely works with the private sector and in many cases relies on it. Although organizations like the FBI over the past several years have really groomed their own internal resources, but even those are going to reach out to private companies and counterparts and experts in, in particular areas. Yeah. Cause the three of your predictions kind of revolve around this point. You have government stepping up their game, law enforcement showing <laughs> Uh, strong strength or in, improving their strength in this space. And then you mentioned the public-private uh, engagements. And I think I saw some point about tooling in there as well. So I, I'm just wondering, uh, I think, well, what am I thinking here? That a lot of the communications I see from the industry, cybersecurity industry, is about protecting the environment itself. So protecting the police force, protecting the uh, investigators, protecting legal teams, uh, the prosecutors and the attorneys and whatnot, protecting those environments that, that these agencies and institutions run within. And I see less about broader monitoring. I know when we were in LA, uh, I forget it was a, some Pepperdine event. Uh, there was we had the, the LA Security Lab. I can't remember the formal name for it. I believe there's one in New York. I'm sure there are many all over the place. Mm -hmm. have, have we seen those actually step up and use tools to for monitoring and shared security and services and and response and things like that? And again, public private sector perhaps come into play there as well. Yeah, the number of security researchers and security firms that do research and investigations, right? It helps their brand and does some, uh, typically it aids their services or products. That has increased again. Um, we hit kind of a plateau for a while. And now suddenly there's lots of more groups doing that and seeing the benefit of it. So we are seeing more on the private side. We are seeing more on the private public side, right, where they're collaborating. We've got CISA uh, or CISA, I guess, as, as they were pronounce it, 
right? And Jen Easterly now coming to the helm of that and really kind of leading that organization and fostering. She has a great reputation in the cybersecurity community and even the hacker community. And she's very friendly. She's very open, very uh, matter of fact, very pragmatic. And she understands that there is a tremendous resource on both sides of the fence. And so building and fostering ties between it, the public and private side, benefits both. And for the first time in a long time, the industry has said yes, and this makes sense. And instead of it just being a one-way street, you know, maybe we're going to get something out of this, right? This is going to help everybody. And that's really a good thing. It's a good thing for everybody, except for the attackers, the offensive side. It's good for cybersecurity. It's good for the defenders. So we're seeing more in that space. But again, and, and I think this goes down to, to the last of, of my predictions, right? There is always a limit to that. Unless you're truly seeing something benefiting your organization when budgets are tight, right? If you're not seeing direct benefits and, you know, the public or private sector is providing information to the public sector, but not getting much back, that's where you've got potential tension. And you may have degradation of a willingness to contribute. And so that's something that, that uh, CISA has to deal with moving forward. And even recently, they were criticized by Congress of not doing enough. Right. Um, ironically, many people in the um, general cybersecurity community came you know, to their side and, and started defending the reputation saying, yeah, they haven't succeeded at solving world hunger, but they've done so much, so much more than the past several years beforehand. And we're seeing a great trend moving forward. We're positive about it. And we think, you know, CISA is doing a good job and it's just getting better for everyone. So yeah. that's telling. Yeah, it is. And I, I know the, the organization has a lot of respect, a lot of, a lot of individuals working with Jen as well. Um, have grown up in the industry and, and bring bring a lot of their relationships to bear as well. And I, I'm just wondering on this point, the because I know there was was it a breach notification national breach notification announced this year. Yeah, I they, remember they, all the uh, release but, alerts. <clears throat> right, and I'm just wondering how it's maybe a little off topic. Just wondering how that changes the because if you're forced to now. Um, does that change how companies perceive uh, the willingness <laughs> to, to share information, right? Well, now now I'm forced to, I'm going to do the bare minimum because I, I have to, and, and I'm going to move on versus really building relationship. This is maybe a little, again, off topic from predictions, but I think it's, it's an interesting point. Yeah. So, you know, they do a couple of things. They do release, um, basically it's a heads up that we have intelligence. We can't tell you about the intelligence, but we believe certain threat actors, in most cases, nation states are going to target certain sectors. It's pretty generic to be perfectly honest. And from a tactical perspective, it doesn't really provide the cybersecurity analysts uh, or CISO with direct information. Oh, I need to look for this specific type of attack or these IP, it doesn't provide that level. But what it does do is it gives them air cover. And what I mean by that is if you're in healthcare, for example, 
you're constantly fighting for, for you know, cybersecurity budget. And it's your word against the, the, the business objectives and everything else. But when CISA comes out and says, hey, healthcare industry, we expect healthcare industry to be attacked, that gives the CISO the ability to go to the board, to go to the CEO and say, hey, look, look what the government, the official you know, statement from the government is our sector is going to be attacked. And that helps them in justifying budget, in getting new programs approved and deployed. So it provides that level of air cover. Now, when it comes to requirements, CISA really isn't mandating requirements on the private sector. However, because of executive orders and other things in the government sector, as well as you know, defense industries and suppliers to government, they are putting rules in place. And so CISA is weighing in on those, and those are required. And so again, uh, their fingers are all over the place. They're helping everywhere that they can with the resources they have. So that does help, especially because they can be very specific in you know what zero trust technologies or capabilities, for example, really need to be deployed and where should they be deployed first. CISA can come out and talk about those and that is detailed enough for that purpose. Yeah, yeah, excellent point. So that, that kind of covers two and 10. Predictions two and ten. I don't know, we we may we may cross ten again. Who knows? Um, number four was lumped in there from a law enforcement. So I'm gonna, I'm going to press you on this one because okay. I think we talk about seeing actual criminal cases, right, and outcomes from that. Um, do you think we did enough there in 2022? Well, in the beginning part of the year, especially the first quarter, there were quite a few announcements of takedown of this group or this infrastructure, or they identified these people and issued, you know, uh, warrants for arrest, international warrants. And we saw some of those. So there were some good cases that came to fruition that really kind of put pressure on several of those cyber criminal groups and cyber mercenary groups. Um, In fact, one of the most prolific and successful ransomware groups, um, R-Evil or Re-Evil, depending on how you want to pronounce it, uh, they were targeted because they were really so successful at ransomware. uh, And, you know, the, the law enforcement started going after them and they announced, hey, we're all retiring. We're done. Our evil is done. We're retiring. We're not around anymore. Right. And we've heard this before from all sorts of cyber criminal groups. And the reality is they're all driven by greed anyway. So they all come back. But we did see some good cases, especially earlier in the year. And that really put pressure on some of the cyber uh, criminal groups. They were also distracted a little bit because there was, you know, this this international war basically going on over in Ukraine. And a lot of the same resources are doing there. And there was some fracturing and infighting. But what we've seen towards the back half of the year is much less when we're talking about cases being announced. And many of those were really focused on nation states, the actual um, you know, government workers 
committing certain crimes and again priorities right are you going to go after the the you know organized cyber criminal that's just stealing a few dollars or are you going to go after the nation state that's you know fleecing millions of dollars and funding that into a military program that could be launching missiles in the south china sea or something who knows so priorities make sense there but we've also seen an uptick now in those cyber criminals and law enforcement really hasn't been able to stem that tide um, for in, in the back half of the year. We're hoping that their funding will increase and their capabilities will increase and the cooperation across public and private will increase so that those organizations can be targeted. Uh, but right now they're, they're having more of a tough time at the end of this, this year. Again, they may just be building their cases. So we may see another influx in Q1, Q2 of next year of successes. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. So many, so many thoughts. I was thinking about uh, lots of fun things going on in, in New York City with uh, surveillance and and surveillance from government, surveillance from private entities, and that information used i don't know it's a totally different thing but it's a lot of stuff coming to mind there maybe we have another oh, channel oh yeah <clears throat> and and that's ban, where you ban, banning people from attending it. events because uh, they're on some list and they facially recognize them uh, yeah are you on one of the no i don't want to know i don't want to <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to know either <laughs> so all right so you've mentioned ransomware a number of times and that's actually yeah. number number three on the list and let's just go straight to a detailed point you made in there that the okay. impact the impact not just the amount of not just the 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 price of uh, payment but the actual impact which could be monetary payouts could be down systems lost revenue loss of life so you're saying at least 10x for 2022 um, over 2021, I presume, and yes. is, I, so I, I, I suspect there's a number in your head. <laughs> or, so well, how, how do you come up with tough. that? I know. Uh, and I have to admit, I don't know if we reached 10x because we knew there was going to be a slowdown in the first kind of half, and then it would pick back up, which it really kind of did. Uh, but from a dollar impact, and, and you know, I've been reading reports compared to 2021. The dollar impact is not 10x, so I did not hit that. But if we do look at some of those other aspects, um, for example, um, Conti, uh, famous ransomware group, right? They actually held hostage an entire country, Costa Rica. They conducted a ransomware attack and held the entire government and country, right, and tried to extort them. Um, so was there a societal impact? I would say yes. <laughs> For that society, that country, that was big. Uh, you know, we've seen other ransomware, whether it be uh, uh, Lapsus, which is, which is more relatively new, their Rampage, um, Hive ransomware, we've seen, which have been targeting businesses and critical infrastructure. Uh, Maui, Conti is still active. Killnet. Uh, in fact, we saw a shift with ransomware. Again, it's still ransomware. It's still the same things by these groups. But towards the beginning of the year, many of them changed their tactics. 
And again, this is probably a result of geopolitical conflicts in Europe, where some of those groups, instead of simply saying, hey, we want money and we will decrypt your files, they weren't going to decrypt the files. It was really about deploying a wiper and destroying right, those critical files of these targets. And we saw, what, six? Well, if you count variants, maybe eight uh, major wipers get released in a very short period of time in the February, March, April timeframe, where when it was targeting critical infrastructure and big businesses, sure, it would say, yes, you have to send us Bitcoin or whatever, uh, Monero, what, whatnot. Uh, but even if you sent it to them, your files were done, right? They, it was just about destruction. They were laying waste, sowing salt, if you will, uh, in, on the digital landscape. So the impacts to that are even more devastating uh, because unfortunately some countries and, and governments and businesses and organizations do pay and sometimes they get their files back or at least some of them and it's less impactful. But in this case, we saw a complete shift. And Australia was also hit um, with ransomware, with data breaches, and they responded in, a, in kind of a visceral way. The government and the Congress over there, the legislature said, we've had it, and basically started assembling a group of legal and law enforcement and digital experts and cybersecurity people. And they're going down the path to try and track these organizations down try and block them in a proactive way, try and build processes and capabilities to be able to detect and respond to them faster and better to minimize losses on the back end. Uh, they've even, even started working on trying to pass a law to prohibit the payment to digital extortion which is something I talked about a couple of years ago and said, if you really wanted to get rid of ransomware, this is the way you did it. You cut off the money supply. Um, Australia is kind of the first country that is saying, yeah, we're, we're definitely interested in that and we're starting to draft legislation. So, and that's radical. That is radical. It can be effective, but it's radical. So again, because of the impacts, we've seen responses from different governments and organizations out there. And I have to admit, I don't think we hit the 10X on the back end coming out of 2022 as compared to 2021 in ransomware, not from a pure dollar sign, but I would say um, we did have significant impacts to society, to governments, to countries, and to industries. Healthcare industry panicked in 2022 about data breaches and ransomware. And they were already spending money. They doubled their efforts because they were worried about that. We saw telecommunications. We saw um, every critical infrastructure sector step up because they were worried about it. And especially when those wipers hit, everybody took a deep breath and said, okay, we need to focus on this. So ransomware did play a big role. I'm not sure if it was 10X losses, but definitely played a big role in 2022. Yeah, so a lot of <clears throat> a lot of growth, re redoing of the tactics, <laughs> of course, and techniques. Um, any any sense for? And we talk, you mentioned kind of the government led activities in some places. Do you have any sense of the protections 
and risk mitigation efforts uh, put in by the industry and by organizations. Do you feel that they rode the wave up with, okay, this is really an important thing. Let's get our backups. Let's get our <laughs> access controls. Let's get our uh, MFA and all that stuff in place to, to kind of mitigate some of this. Yeah, I think they did. I think the the smart CISOs out there and and savvy organizations, boards, and C suites realize this is a material risk. And every news story, World Economic Forum, you know, G seven, everybody's talking about it. It's something we can't ignore. And these organizations typically then took that first step. Okay, let's let's get the basics in place. And once that was in there, they started talking about, okay, what else can we do? And that's a little unusual conversation for an organization that typically does not generate revenue, right? What else, how, how else can we spend on this? And it's, it's refreshing and you have to take advantage of it while that's there. Uh, we even had a lot of momentum and focus on zero trust. It became one of the big buzzwords of... 2022 in the cybersecurity realm. I had board members, people that weren't even all that technical go, yeah, we should do zero trust. And I'd ask them, do you know what zero trust is? No, I don't know what it is, but it sounds like we definitely need to do that. Okay, great. You know, let's build a zero trust strategy. <laughs> uh, so there was, there was enthusiasm, there was momentum. Uh, I fear as we go into this next year and there's going to be uh, economic challenges, budgetary challenges, and therefore prioritization of where you're going to spend that budget within organizations, I think we're going to see a contraction in the motivation and enthusiasm to spend money in cybersecurity and privacy. And that will have, unfortunately, some consequences. Yeah, there's a whole, whole big world of uh, economics there that uh, we could unpack if we had time, just, I don't know, reduction in force in many companies, people that are skilled, no other jobs available, cybercrime. <laughs> like, oh, we're going to talk about like that a more. A decent opportunity. <laughs> um, let, let's, you, you gave the example of, of legislation uh, in Australia, uh, but your fifth so kind of leading from that to your, your mm -hmm. fifth prediction is around uh, geopolitics and foreign policy and, and cyber tooling as a, as a way to conduct international uh, business relations. Well, it's <laughs> not even summary. business relations, right? It's foreign policy tools by governments. No, I, I, I picture the government's agenda, business. right? Geopolitical yeah. agenda. Yeah. And so, so talk to me a little bit about this point. Um, okay. Okay. What, what was you, what were you really trying to communicate with this and how did, how did that flush out? Well, again, every country has their own political agenda on the international landscape of politics. And maybe they want to expand their borders. Maybe they want to be recognized as the international currency. Maybe they want you know, better, uh, lower tariffs and trade, you know, or to have sanctions removed, who knows? Every country is a little bit different. But there are only a certain set of tools available over the last 20, 50, 100 years, 
right, to be able to push those. And one of them, obviously, has been military. If you don't like what your neighbor's doing, right, they're not trading the grain that they have with you or they have diamonds or oil or whatever, you invade, you go take it. Okay, we, we've become a little bit more civilized in general, and that's happened less often. But military is, is one of those ways to influence a political agenda. Right. Why does the United States have, what, 13 aircraft carriers? Right. It's force projection. <laughs> it's defense. But it's also if I park that carrier out, you know, off your coast, um, my voice tends to have a little bit more strength behind it when we talk about things. OK, uh, there's economic benefits. We can pay money. We can subsidize tariffs. But what we're seeing now is another lever is offensive cybersecurity. Okay, so take for example, if I'm an oil producing nation, right? And you don't like what I'm doing politically and I don't like what you're doing. And so you start cutting off the supplies that, that I'm giving you, right? And we saw this with Russia. Russia was providing all sorts of natural, liquefied natural gas and oil and oil products into Europe. Okay, Europe decided, hey, we're gonna start turning that off. Well, Russia didn't really like that. Do you know where the next series of cyber attacks went to? Internal capabilities to be able to get oil and fuel and so forth from other countries. We saw oil refineries being attacked with cyber attacks. We saw um, uh, oil storage. We saw um, distribution of liquefied uh, natural gas right? Those kind of capabilities start to get attacked. Hmm. I wonder, right? Who could, who could possibly be doing that? Well, we found out, we know who. Um, but again, you can now start without having to roll tanks over the border per se, you can use cyber attacks, offensive cyber attacks to affect politics, to determine who the new, next leaders are, to impact critical infrastructure like power, food supplies, trade, all of that. And what if you're, let's say, being embargoed? Or what if there's international restrictions against you and you can't trade and you need hard currency? Hmm, let me think of a way now that I could acquire hard currency, preferably by those who are putting sanctions in place, and then I could use that to run my government and build my military. Right? This is the exact problem that Iran, North Korea, now Russia have encountered. And when those sanctions go in place, what happens? Ransomware attacks. Wow, ransomware attacks predominantly against the countries and organizations that sanctioned. And you're demanding millions of dollars. And those millions of dollars are now going back to those countries. Okay, it's a way of getting around sanctions. It's a way of bringing in more hard currency. So yeah. countries are seeing this as another lever. It's another tool in the toolbox. And unfortunately, they realize it's really cost-effective. You don't have, a, have to have a physical border or even be in the same hemisphere as the opposing country. It's cheap, easy to do, and it works. Okay. Add no, that hard, to hard the to if, you, if you leverage uh, uh, ally, quote unquote, allies that aren't uh, within your borders. 
and uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of a lot of potential benefit on that yes. front. T turn that inward now. Okay. Your, num your number six is uh, still government oriented, but less about levered levers against others, but levers against oneself. <laughs> Their own internal population, yes. right? Oppressive governments really like to stay in power, right? That tends to be like job one. If you're going to be a dictator or an oppressive ruler, stay in power. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, uh, those oppressive people, when they are booted out of power, their life doesn't tend to go so well after that. So they are highly motivated to stay in power and as long as they can. Um, part of that is about control. And if you can keep your own populace in the dark, or if you can control what they see and hear, because that's how we build our beliefs. We build our beliefs based on what we're, what information we have, our experiences, things of that sort. If you can control the narrative, if you can control what they're being taught in schools and what they can see on the news and what they can download off of the internet, and you control those narratives, especially if you actually write the narratives and say, this is all they get to ever see, and we will block everything else, that really helps. You know what else helps? Finding those people that don't like you, don't like the current government. And we now have these digital tools. This, these digital tools gather so much information. So governments can do a search to see who's talking, who's texting, who's chatting, who's writing articles, right? Who's making phone calls and talking with people in a negative way about the current government. Let me identify those people. Let me find out where they work, where they live, where they go to school. And from that point, only bad things happen. We've yeah, seen- A bit of black, uh, black mirror. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've we've literally seen things to the extent of people showing up in masks in the middle of the night, grabbing those individuals, and those individuals are never seen again. We've seen other more subtle impacts. Oh, you've written a blog that says you don't like the government or you've criticized the government. You know what? You just lost your job today. Did did, did I forget to mention that? Yeah, your employer's sending you a message. Oh, by the way, yeah, your children aren't going to get into the university anymore. Yeah, their application has been denied. They're, they're being kicked out of the university. Yeah, did I, did I mention? Oh, by the way, your credit score, your social score is now way down. You're not going to be able to get a loan or afford the new car. Hmm. That's, that's a shame. You know, patriots, however, you know, people who support the current regime, they get all these benefits. So it can be subtle as well. Yeah. And that, I think to me, that's the, and, and I mean, different cultures have a different understanding and different experience that either, I don't know, lets them accept it, tolerate it, embrace it. Uh, and to your point, maybe different, different sides, supporters, antagonists, mm -hmm. what have you. Um, a little bit off talk here, but I, I touched on it earlier for the benefit of society we we monitor more <laughs> yes and <clears throat> i'm just wondering because we, we we did see in 2022 um 
governments using social media and other technologies to continue to clamp down and surveil and, and control that narrative as you, as you just described. Do you have a sense of that, that, that process being stepped up in places that aren't viewed as oppressive, but could easily turn on a dime if, if, uh, if a particular person or party or some event takes place that then changes how those tools and, and, ex and new things that are put in place are used uh, against the, the civilians. Absolutely. Um, in fact, I expect more data collection, um, aggregation and analysis to occur across the board everywhere that it is not challenged. So, you know, our, our digital environment, everything that we strap on our wrists or put on our face or, or, you know, climb in to go somewhere or log in or all of that provides tremendous digital footprints and data and knowledge. It is a wealth of information. And we tend to, as humans, not look at something as bad until we actually feel the pain. Uh, so what if the government is tracking everybody that's talking on Twitter and they're tracking the locations of where they're at? Who cares? No big deal, right? Until you're a person in Arab Spring standing or, or marching for freedom, right, in a peaceful march. And suddenly the government then uses that information to know who was in that peaceful march. And then it, people start disappearing at night. Oh, whoa, 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 wait a second. Oh, we didn't not now because it could be me. Time out. I don't want that. That that's obviously bad. So, you know, we, we have an axiom in cybersecurity, right? Security is not relevant until it fails. And people tend not to take security and privacy seriously until they feel the negative impacts. They are somebody they know until it touches their lives. And without that tension, these powerful tools and data are going to be used. They're going to be gathered. And that's why we're seeing an, an uptick in privacy and organizations and even groups and people and communities saying, hey, privacy is important. It really is. Surveillance is also important to a certain extent. We want to be able to detect criminals and child molesters and, and you know, uh, human trafficking and all those things. Yes, yes, yes. But we also don't want to have that data persecute or negatively impact people and citizens that are, that are behaving legally and ethically. So there becomes this tension in the system. And that's good. And we as a society have to figure out where that right balance is. And that's something we're growing into. Nobody's got it figured out. We're growing into Marco that. has it figured out. <laughs> he's, not ready for this answer. he's got everything figured out. He just that's doesn't right. want to tell us. That's right. Let's uh, I'm conscious of time here and I'm, I'm, we can okay. talk for hours, I'm sure. But let's kind of bounce off of this point because now you're talking tons of data about tons of people and tons of places and I mean, signals and sensors and, and bears. Oh my, uh, the only way to really get our heads wrapped around this is to 
not actually use our own heads, but use an artificial one. So your seventh prediction is that AI is going to really play a big role in cyber tooling. And yes. uh, so I obviously we, we transitioned from surveillance, but <laughs> looking, let's just say looking for the bad and all of that noise, AI is going to have a role. Did, did, did it actually come to fruition? I know look at any men, vendors messaging, they have it sorted out, but where do we really stand with that? Okay, well, let's look at uh, chat GPT. Let's look at deep fakes. Let's look at, um, you know, all the uh, adversarial networks that have been developed in 2022 that are taking all that digital data we talked about, right? The data lakes, and it's not even lakes anymore. It's oceans and moons of, of, of liquid data out there. And our brains can't process that, but developing artificial systems, yes, they can analyze it and aggregate it and come up with, with all sorts of new viewpoints and conclusions and even generate new things, right? I was looking at a video of, of this woman and she's talking and I can't remember what she was talking about. Um, and, you know, the caption below it was, this is entirely fake. We used um, chat GPT to create some text, we created um, uh, or we used uh, adversarial networks to create a deep fake of a woman's head and shoulders talking. We used uh, voice uh, synthesizers to be able to pronounce it in in a you know it was in English, but you know a dialect and and everything else. Um, you know the mouth is moved in perfect unison of it. So this is entirely synthetic. Not a real person. A real person didn't write the words that they're saying and didn't speak the sounds, and, you know, the speech that she had. So we were able to do lots of different things there. AI is powerful. It's a powerful tool. And you know who loves powerful tools? The bad guys. Yes. They love these powerful tools to be able to generate social engineering attacks, for example. And we saw that in 2022. We saw social engineering attacks of phone calls with voice modulation of someone's boss telling them, you need to cut a PO to this company immediately. Well, that's my boss's voice. Of course, I'm gonna, he's the CEO. Of course, I'm going to go do this. We saw people create entire profiles, right? And entire chains of profiles in things like LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and so forth. Right, that were all fictitious. Why? Because that helps with social engineering. We've seen AI tools dive in for phishing attacks and be able to grab open source intelligence to be able to craft phishing messages, spear phishing messages that are specific to an individual person and be very relevant. This is just the tip. This is just what we saw towards the back end of yeah, last so the, year. Those are all the point of the spear. How about the uh, the, the the backstop that's <laughs> catching these arrows? Well, it's as we feel the pain, right? Yeah. Then the good guys come up with things like um, a Princeton professor just this last week came up with an algorithm that could detect um, Chat GT or G Chat GPT. Uh, when it creates like a writes a paper. So, so a tool like this that. could yeah. be used by professors to see, well, if students are just giving their assignments to AI to write the paper, read the book and give them a synopsis or whatever, 
Um, you know, so and again, now becomes the escalating tug of war. Okay, that one tool can do it okay. The tool will improve, but guess what? The AI tools are going to get better to sound more like people. And even now, you can go to these AI systems and say, write a paper in the voice of Sean, and they will analyze how you normally write, how you normally speak, your vocabulary, and write something just as if you would. So there, it's just going to be a race. But that's okay. That brings in the tension that we need. The last thing we want is a tool that can be misused and not having any counter tools to detect or prevent or respond to it. But it's a whole new area of warfare. <laughs> oh, by the way, for those security folks, whole new area of warfare you need to worry about and your budgets are going to shrink. Yeah. And good luck having staff. Yes. <laughs> or hiring somebody. Yes. <laughs> so you're, your, your thoughts on this. Um, clearly, there's enough compute power to do some of these things one off. I don't know how how advanced they can get where we're now having conversations between <clears throat> multiple deep fakes and deep fakes in humans. And if we bring it to the cyber world's uh, artificially driven uh, attacks and artificial uh, intelligence enabled uh, defenses. I don't know how far we get there, but my question is kind of leading to your next prediction, quantum mm -hmm. computing. So do our, do, our, do our CPUs today have enough to do what do we need to do to protect against what's possible with the current compute power? Um, I know GPUs are uh, kind of bring it to the next level. What, what does quantum do? Do we need quantum to protect against ourselves here or or is that just going to make a it different way of computing <laughs> things right and the technology has lots of different, different <clears throat> ramifications when it comes to ai our normal cpu gpus and then the uh, ai enhanced silicon that's coming out that we're starting to see um, those are really optimized for certain ai routines certain deep learning algorithms things of that sort when we get to quantum, what the real, the shorter term risk, the near risk with quantum is its ability to undermine how we secure data, typically data in transit, but also data at rest, how it potentially could undermine encryption, security keys, public private keys, things of that sort. Um, we've known this to be a problem uh, with things like Shor's algorithm which is really good at undermining things like RSA security. Think of public-private keys, right? That kind of, of security. That computing, when it gets powerful enough, can undermine it. So there's been ongoing efforts. Ongoing efforts to identify quantum-resistant algorithms. And there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, NIST is actually kind of leading the way for the United States. By the way, different regions in the world do their own. So encryption standards here in the U.S. are completely different than the ones in China. Okay, So in the U.S. and, and Western countries, they're all kind of working together to figure out what are those next uh, algorithms that will replace RSA and some other things like that. And they're working on them. Um, but it's a race because as these quantum computers get faster and faster, they get closer to being able to crack that 
right? Crack it like an egg uh, and get into all that data and files. So we have a problem there. Now, my prediction was, and this is this is the wildest right. prediction that I had, was we were actually going to see quantum computers proof of concept be able to get to a state, uh, probably with an improved Shor's algorithm or something similar, to be able to break some of these algorithms in a much faster way that would kind of panic the world. So we did have some issues this year. We did accelerate the quantum, um, well, it, it was kind of a bake-off. And to the point of NIST coming out, not with one right, um, new algorithm, they came out with, I want to say, four different algorithms to replace the legacy ones. Okay. And they said, eh, some may eventually be better than others. We're really not sure. But here's four. Just go. Just go. Just, just get ready, which is a little unusual. It seemed a little rushed, but that's okay because we needed those. We also saw there were, uh, and that was out of a finalist of, I want to say 10, right? They picked four and they had been working on these 10 for years. Um, this year, 20, I'm sorry, in 2022, they actually were able to fully crack one of those other competitors. And it was shocking. Everybody was like, what? This was one of our finalists. Um, and it wasn't one of the four that they announced, but it was one of the kind of the backup ones behind those that they were able to go, yeah, it just occurred to us. If we just do X, Y, and Z and we do this, we break it. Oh, good to know. Good to know. Okay, that, that's off the potential list. We're, we're done with that one. But again, things are moving so fast. So if I had to rate myself on this one, I would say this did not come to fruition in 2022. I hope this doesn't come to fruition in 2023, <laughs> but there's probably a good chance that there's going to be more events that accelerate and motivate people to start moving in that direction for quantum resistant or quantum proof uh, algorithms to protect today's data or tomorrow's data yesterday's data it'll get cracked eventually yeah. but you know moving forward so i would say that i did not this is not a good prediction <laughs> Thank, for me from thankfully, last year thankfully i know there's an increased level of uh conversation around this yeah place, for certain for certain and also rooted in, in, in encryption technologies you're our final point, it's ninth on your list, but since we already covered 10, this will be the final point to, for our chat today on, on your list. Number nine is cryptocurrency and uh, becomes a magnet for theft, tax, and fraud. One, one could easily at this point point to the last, <laughs> the last element of fraud. Um, I, I don't know if that's just human uh, greed fraud there or if it was actual technically driven fraud um but i don't know who, who knows what what's really going on there i don't know if any of the any of the, the you're the talking cases, ftx I'm, I'm talking to ftx i don't know what's what's going on there I, I clearly there's there's some shenanigans going on i don't know how much of it <laughs> is a single person or an entity or if there's misinformation or compromise behind the scenes that drove some of the, I don't know, because I haven't been following it 
that closely. Maybe you, maybe you have some insight. I have been following it, but we, we will find out the facts probably in short order here in the next few months, uh, given the cooperation that some of the people in Alameda Research and even in FTX uh, have come forth. Uh, and their CEO, although he has, um, you know, claimed um, not guilty, pleaded not guilty to those charges a few days ago, we're going to we're going to uncover some stuff now, you know, that there was a lot of fraud there. But there would and you may not realize this, but there was also a hack as part of that fraud. And it was for about four hundred million dollars worth, just as, you know, these organizations started to fall apart. Suddenly they were hacked. And $400 million disappeared. And in fact, it just started uh, getting separated and put through some mixers uh, a couple of days ago. So the attackers are trying to launder this, this cryptocurrency. But you bring up a good question. Is it just fraud or is it fraud that is facilitated by the technology? And I would say it's, it's actually a combination, right? We see fraud in financial institutions, right? We see Ponzi schemes and things of that sort, right? Uh, Madoff, for example, right, largest Ponzi scheme ever in traditional finance. But when we look at crypto and how that organization, you know, those organizations are run and both the transparency and the ability to hide things, it makes it a lot more interesting. In fact, it was because the very transparency that these uh, investigative reporters were able to detect there were problems and they published articles which created the bank run that then forced FTX into, you know, disillusionment, into uh, into having to give up and, and going eventually into bankruptcy and whatnot. But if we just look at the fraud, FTX, $400 million account. We had in 2022, Axie Infinity was hit with over $600 million um, theft. Wormhole Bridge was hit for 400, 400? No, 300 and change, 300 and change. Uh, FTX was hit with 400. Binance was hit with a uh, little over half a billion dollars uh, in an attack. And they were able to recover some of that. So it you know, whittled down to only 100 million and, and change. We had Beanstalk, Mango. Those were well over $100 million as well. We saw lots of different attacks and fraud and theft go on impacting the crypto currency, um, you know, industries and victimize those users there uh, while the price was also going down. So, you know, the people in cryptocurrency have really suffered in 2022. And a good chunk of that is also because of cyber criminals, fraud, both internal and external, all sorts of different reasons. But the bad guys have been targeting crypto. It's where the money is. And in some cases, it's easy to get a hold of, oh, $100 million here or there without a whole lot of work. You know, we've seen individual attacks, individuals, one person secure over $100 million, right, from one cryptocurrency app. That's huge. That's that's a massive bankroll there yeah, for one person. A few months worth of living anyway. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Depending on your lifestyle. But we're probably not going to see that change, right? Wherever there's money, the attackers are always nearby. And because crypto was, and still to a good extent, is not very secured, um, you know, it was the rush to market, let's develop all these products and tools and just worry about, you know, being successful. Security was an afterthought. 
And we warned the industry. This was, we're keeping it a secret. We were telling them, you're going to get abused. No, no, no. I see all these zeros coming in. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Until it isn't fine. Goes back to that first axiom, right? It's not relevant until it fails and you crater and die. Okay, now it's relevant. Too late. Not a problem until it is. Ah, boy. And again, there's so many angles to take on this one in terms of, well, that that's loss of cryptocurrency value, which then translates back to real dollars and other currencies and mm -hmm. people rely on it for income. I know, I know some folks that live off of that, um, that, that money <laughs> and maybe a little less now in some cases. Um, maybe people aren't buying houses and cars if, if they lost and planes with crypto. Yes. Yes. Uh, and then, and then you bring it down. I don't know if it, we joked about the lifestyle of 100 million, but uh, even even tens of thousands can impact how somebody spends their money or not, and yes, the the, the economic impact that has or could have or has had. <laughs> Who knows? Oh yeah. Um. Well, Matthew, uh, as I said at the beginning, blowing my mind ten times over here. Um. Right along with one of your predictions, right? <laughs> I didn't quite make it. You, you held up, held up the prediction in this one. Um, for those interested, it might be it might be a, a fun listen to. Uh, we actually did a, an episode on this uh, to to set the stage. We did we did? Okay, I vaguely remember that. Yes. yes. So that was the beginning beginning of twenty twenty two. We we had this conversation to kind of lay this out. So. Be, I didn't listen to it again, but I, I think I might um, just to kind of see see what we said there. But the reason I mentioned that is it might be fun. Listen, but uh, as twenty twenty three predictions come around for you, we'll certainly uh, certainly have you back, and and hopefully Marco can join as well. But um, I know this is a long episode. Uh, hopefully everybody's enjoying. I certainly did, but I don't want to cut it too short anyway. Uh, I want to give you one one minute. Uh, a, a sneak peek at maybe what mm. what 2023 might be put very, me on the spot. You can be general. Okay, 60 seconds, 60 yeah. seconds here because I'm I haven't published them yet. They've been yeah. trouble. 2023 is troublesome. Uh, we've talked about a couple uh, some of the themes, right? And I think it's really going to be around the economics of cybersecurity. We've got less budgets, more trouble, and in times of economic downturn non-profitable organizations like cybersecurity and privacy tend to get smashed the most. So less resources and capabilities. But at the same time, we have, and we've talked about this, right? Nation states, they're starting to realize how cost-effective and efficient cyber operations are, offensive cyber operations. They're going to start pouring a lot more money into it. So we're going to see a lot more funding for research, for vulnerabilities, for exploitations. And in their mindset, they're willing to use these things. And so as soon as they use them, it becomes public and all the cyber criminals grab it, tear it apart, use whatever pieces they want. And so it does impact everyone. And so we've go we're going to have more attacks. We're going to have more resources on the wrong side of the budgets, uh, the budget line, you know, coming in to the attacker's side and not on the defender's side. And that's going to shift that tension. And it's going to make cybersecurity much more difficult in 2022. 
the expectations don't go down. The regula regulations don't have a blind eye suddenly because budgets are low. They're still going to be enforced. But our capabilities on cybersecurity, it's going to be an uphill struggle. We are going to find ourselves woefully under-resourced compared to the amount of money and funds. We're talking tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars being invested by nations all across the world for offensive operations that eventually we'll have to deal with. Yeah, I, I agree with that general prediction. And my hope in response to that and in the spirit of this redefining cybersecurity channel, um, I think we, we've talked about this before. To me, the answer isn't, oh, darn it, my budget's cut. I'm going to do less. To me, it's how do I have a conversation with the business to reduce exposure so I don't have to spend as much? <laughs> uh, yes. And I, I'll call that shift left. A lot mm -hmm. of people may not like like that. But the more we can do to, to say, let, let's not take, let's not do that that way right now. <laughs> let's not collect that data. Let's not open that service. Let's not expose that to the internet. Let's not... Let's not store all of our uh, golden eggs in the same the same basket uh, that, that everybody knows the name of it because we've labeled it and and uh, it's on you can find its credentials on Shodan. Um, there there are some smart ways to manage the business so that we don't overwhelm the security team while crushing their budget and making them for or forcing them to to make a decision on what to leave exposed. Let's just not expose it in the first place. So that's my soapbox. Um, and it felt 100% behind <laughs> you. I, I, I think you nailed it. I mean, there's many things that we have to do and prioritizing, setting clear goals, understanding what those business trade offs and making sure that security is part of that business discussion. It's yep. all important. Absolutely. All right. Well, I predict we'll have you on again, Matthew, uh, for many different things. I also predict at some point. Uh, I'll get my act together and, and we'll, I'll be uh, joining you at some point <laughs> for, for a chat with you to sound uh, super lame as you as you grow me on some things. But uh, hopefully everybody enjoyed this. Uh, it's always great chatting with you and, and the information I believe is super helpful for folks. It definitely gets people to think. So thanks, Matthew. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this Redefining Cybersecurity episode here on ITSP Magazine. HITRUST is a leading data protection standards development and certification organization that strives to safeguard sensitive information and manage information risk for global organizations across all industries and throughout the third-party supply chain. Learn more at HITRUSTALLIANCE.net. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Cybersecurity with Sean Martin, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. 
We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. And you can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Thank you.